So anyway, it turns out like this is this is the type of stuff our brain starts to do. Our brains are really good at uh, filling in holes and imagining. It's actually what makes us really, really creative people and, and really innovative and able to do a lot of different things. But our brains fill gaps for us. <laughs> Technology is transforming how we think, how we lead, and how we win. From InterVision, this is Status Go, the show helping IT leaders move beyond the status quo, master their craft, and propel their IT vision. Google the word bias and you will get over 2 billion results. That's billion with a B. We have heard a lot lately about gender bias, racial bias, and other biases. But the cold hard truth is that we all have biases. It's one of the ways we navigate this planet we live on and the lives we live. As a leader, understanding your biases can be the key to being a great leader rather than just a mediocre leader. Today on Status Go, we will focus on one category of bias a leader needs to be particularly aware of as they go about their day. Cognitive biases are the attempts of the brain to create shortcuts for information processing and decision-making. Our guest is Mike Butler. Mike is the CTIO for First Merchants Bank in Muncie. In addition to being a self-proclaimed data geek, he is particularly interested in the effects of cognitive biases on innovation and creative problem solving. Mike, welcome to Status Go. Thanks, Jeff. Happy to be here. I am so excited about digging into this topic. Uh, I had the opportunity for our listeners, I had the opportunity to hear Mike speak about this several weeks ago and jumped at the chance to, to get him on status go because I think what we're gonna talk about today is really going to help you in your leadership journey, no matter where you are in that journey. But before we dive into that, Mike, I, I'd love for you to share a bit more about your background your career journey and, and how you came to be there at First Merchants. Yeah, I actually, um, so I, I started as an intern actually at First Merchants. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so I entered, I, I, uh, had, I had run a small computer repair business as a kid in college, making some extra money. Um, and it turned out I, I was working on uh, the guy who was the president of First Merchants Bank. I'd been working at his house <laughs> and he called me one day and he said, hey, what are you doing for the summer? Are you internship hunting? I said, yeah. I'm starting. I've been looking, and he uh, he introduced me to a guy named Stefan, who's currently our uh, is our executive CIO, um, and he ended up hiring me as an intern. Uh, at, I cut my teeth basically working with Kofax and some um, uh, some document imaging platforms that summer, which was like the first stuff we were doing as a bank. Mm -hmm. um, and he asked he asked me to stay on, and I I said I jumped at the chance, and so. Um, I spent most of my career then at First Merchants actually building different departments and teams. I built a built a data engineering team, built a software development team, built uh, a BI team, um, and I, it really created. I, I think a lot of what you when you want to grow into a more executive role, it really is about like the value stream that you can develop and bring. Um, and I found that uh, building those types of technical capabilities, specifically when it got into data. Um, I really enjoyed and the company really uh, got a lot of value from it. So like we went through like the 2008, you know, financial collapse. A lot of the work that my team was doing on uh, data at that time was giving us visibility into loan portfolios and things that were happening um, that a lot of other banks didn't have at the time. Um, so anyway, so it was so really cool journey. Got to cut my teeth that way. Um, in 2014, 
uh, my boss was promoted and the CTO job uh, came available and they, they offered that to me. So then I got, then I got to spend uh, the last seven years uh, moving data centers, developing the cloud infrastructure, uh, you know, working on all kinds of stuff. And then um, last year, or about two years ago, as we started the digital transformation journey, um, I started working with the executive team and saying, hey, I really, I want to do more in the innovation realm. I want to, I want to help solve more problems that are occurring other than, you know, some of the support challenges and things like that. And so got the opportunity to move into the chief technology innovation officer role, uh, where I'm uh, right now just working on some, some different digital initiatives and some different new strategies and, and new modern architectures and things like that. So it's been a really fun journey. I love that title, Chief Technology and Innovation Officer. Yeah. That, is, that is that is cool. Well, Mike, what's the story, man? How did you get interested in cognitive bias and interested enough to dedicate a good chunk of your time to study, write, and even speak about cognitive bias? Yeah, that's a great question, right? Why is a technology guy interested in this? Um, so it starts, I was really young. So my dad's a cognitive psychologist. And if you think about it, he needed experiments and subjects for those experiments, right? So what better than his kids? Uh, <laughs> so you were a lab true. rat. We <laughs> were lab rats. Um, I'm kidding. So he actually did a lot of research at Ball State. And so he um, developed the first human factors lab, which a lot of like these days we would call that like UX, um, experience design, things like that. Um, and so he, we would, we would go to his labs. We'd help set up. Um, uh, the computers, these big Apple IIe labs, you know, when I say big, it's like five computers or something like that. But back, this is the 80s. So yeah, back, back in the, the 80s, was, that was yeah, big. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we got to do that. Um, I got exposed then to some of the research. So he's, he's doing lots of kind of research on interfaces, like how people interact with test interfaces, stuff like that. Um, and as my career evolved, I, and then as I got more into data, I got really interested in what was happening from an innovation perspective with data, what was happening from a leadership perspective, um, what was happening within data when we collect, you know, information, is there bias in the data? And the answer is yes. I have a blog post on that. We could talk about it at a different time. Um, and so I started to get really interested in like, how do I help people unlock their careers? How do I help them unlock their leadership abilities? How do I, how do I actually deal with my, like my issues on projects and things like that? Or what are they? Um, and so I, you know, I would talk to my dad and he had different, he had really different perspectives than, um, you know, what you, what you might have from, from management course or something like that. Uh, and so I get, started to get really interested in it. And so I, um, you know, finished, finished my MBA, uh, in, I think that was 2011, um, started working. I can't stop going to school. Even if I don't finish a degree, I start degrees all the time and, and take, you know, half the classes and just get really interested in it. Um, but that led me towards, uh, start, started to do cognitive bias research because I was really interested in innovation and leadership. And I found that there's all these ties that, uh, that that inhibit our ability to do things um, or that we just need to be aware of because it's actually uh, part of how our decision making processes work. So it's been pretty interesting to to go through that and, and do a lot of research on that. And while I, I don't consider myself like an expert in it, um, I have learned a lot about it and I like to share it with people when I have the opportunity. Well, I, I think it's great. And I, I think it's great that you're here with us today to share this with IT leaders who are our listeners, um, because I think some of what we're going to talk about is applicable every single day in the life of someone, some, someone in IT. And as I mentioned at the outset, I heard you speak recently, and I love the way you started with the visualization exercise. 
Uh, you led the audience through this. And uh, I'm wondering if you're game to try to do that with our listeners. Maybe we have them close their eyes and imagine the day. Yeah. But, but walk us through that that exercise. Well, I think you spoke at that event too, and you did one. And you're actually better at it. I will attempt to be as good at you. So we'll, we'll, we'll try it here. <laughs> All right. So close your eyes and get ready. Um, so let's so let, let's just visualize some of this. So you've been appointed the head of IT for an up and coming company. You show up to work and you know you have a lot of work to do that day. You got to finish contract negotiations. You have several issues you need to investigate. You need to meet a new team member named Taylor that's on your network team. As you walk into the office, you're greeted by Sam. Sam says, hey, that million dollar new SAN uh, is in and we're going to go take a look at it if you want to see. It's going to solve all our storage problems. You think your team told you it was 30 days to implement, so you've got some time to look later. The vendor said 90 days to implement, but if you push the team, you know you can do it in 30 days because the executive team is expecting some big wins in your first few months in this role. Before you get pulled into that, though, you need to finish contract negotiations. Uh, you review the numbers. They don't seem that bad. It's time to make a deal. You ink the deal. You send it off to the account rep. Next, you call your managers in for a discussion on the hiring market. You've noticed that open positions are taking longer to fill. You've, you're convinced the issue is that the HR pay structure isn't what you need to fill the roles. You ask your manager if that's what they think, and they confirm it. You have a whole team that you, that you want to tell HR that they think you've identified the issue, and here's what we need to do. Next, you head down to the meeting with Taylor before tackling some more issues. You talk to Taylor for 30 minutes. You both like all kinds of the same stuff. You're basically the same person. You're convinced that Taylor is going to be a great employee. You head off for the next gauntlet of meetings for the rest of the day, satisfied you're going to make a difference. So the stuff that happened in there, Jeff, I'm sure you picked up on some of it. You've, you've heard some of this before, um, but your brain did a bunch of stuff. If you were imagining that uh, mm -hmm. from trying to make shortcuts, trying to figure out who these people are. But like one was, you know, what's the gender of Sam and Taylor? Those are pretty, you know, generic names. Those mm -hmm. could be male or female. Another is like, how much was in that contract? So we talked about the million dollar SAN earlier, uh, and we'll talk about this in a second, but there's an anchoring effect that occurs when you hear a number and then you immediately go look at another number. Um, but was is was it a million dollars? And you're like, yeah, we just spent a million dollars. We're okay. Another one's like, did you get any feedback on those theories or did you just, everyone just started to agree with you? So you went with it. And we like that. When people agree with us. <laughs> yep, yep. Another is like, you know, it. Is HR really the problem? What if your managers haven't been interviewing because they're busy? Or another is like, why is Taylor a good employee? Just because you like the same things? Does that make sense? So anyway, it turns out like this is this is the type, type of stuff our brain starts to do. Our brains are really good at uh, filling in holes and imagining. It's actually what makes us really, really creative people and, and really innovative and able to do a lot of different things. But our brains fill gaps for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it's those shortcuts that that sometimes you know we think, well, I'm an I'm an, an in, intuitive thinker, decision maker. I, I react by my gut, and it's really your brain that's kind of wired that way. Yeah. Uh, talk to us about the dual processing theory, and then we're going to get into some of these cognitive biases. Yeah, yeah. Dual processing theory is pretty cool. So there's a couple of theories out there, but dual processing is the one. I like the most. I think it's I think it's easy to understand, and it it kind of helps uh, explain it really well. So Daniel Kamen uh, did a lot of research in this in the '70s and um, uh, presented a, a theory that's called dual processing. And so the idea behind dual processing is that your brain has kind of two modes. 
uh, mode one or system one, as they call it, is like your it's that's your that's your hot mode. That's your unconscious, fast, associative. Like it's your automatic pilot. You can do things in this mode, and it takes no energy. Um, system two, though, that's your that's your more logical, deliberate. Um, it's more effortful to use separate, uh, system two, but it, it's the one that actually helps you think through situations and slow down. It's 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 uh, it's actually not where the types of biases we're talking about are, are generally interacting. We're, a lot of the stuff we're talking about happens in system one. So system one relies on these mental shortcuts to create like these, to generate like these intuitive answers uh, mm-hmm. to different problems and things like that. And so the, while well, system two um, can kind of, debunk those or has has the capability to kind of kind of help you through it it turns out though system two does not want to be engaged system two <laughs> is is your is the is, is the lazy you know person in the office in your brain mm-hmm. uh and really does not want to get engaged it'll have to because system one is the easy one system one and our if our brains are truly trying to take the easy path it doesn't want to and the idea behind this is it doesn't want to consume as you know you're trying to conserve energy mm-hmm. um and these days, I don't think we need to because we have restaurants and all kinds of things. We get plenty of energy. <laughs> right, right. Right. But system two doesn't, it really doesn't want to engage. So a lot of times what happens is, is you have to force it and you have to, you have to create awareness around it to be able to get system two to engage, to be able to de-bias, to be able to, you know, solve different problems uh, that show up. Well, I know there's different schools of thought on the number of cognitive biases mm-hmm. that, that typically reside in that system one area, um, but you focused on 10. So could you just, uh, we don't have time to dive into all 10, but could you just list off the 10 that you're that you're pretty focused on? Yeah. So uh, overconfidence bias, um, which is what it sounds like. You're, you're overly confident. Anchoring bias, which is like that contract one we talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, confirmation bias, which is a really common one. That's, you know, people seek to can find things that agree with you, uh, blind spot bias, you know, believing that you, uh, uh, you know, don't have any blind spots, loss aversion bias, which we're going to talk about status quo bias is another one. Mm-hmm. Um, availability bias, the halo effect, which a lot of people have heard about. That's actually a, a type of bias. Um, representativeness bias is another one. And then, uh, fundamental attribution error is, uh, are the 10 that I really like to talk about with people. I find them interesting. Yeah. As you were going through these, uh, in that presentation, it was like, yep, I got that one. Yep. I got that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the, the first one I want to dive into is, is, uh, uh I'm going to call it FOMO, uh, fear of missing out, right. Uh, loss aversion. Talk to us about that bias. Yeah. So, so loss aversion, um, so I'll, I'll use the definition and then we can talk about it. So it's a, it's an ace, it's an asymmetric evaluation of positive and negative outcomes in which you, you, the negative outcomes are overestimated to be larger. And so like the easy way of saying that is you're, you're very worried then about the negative thing that could happen. So like, uh, we see this in like the stock market where people, they buy a stock and then they sell it really early before they've, you know, really let it, uh, you know, continue to earn. Um, or it loses a little bit and they immediately sell it thinking they're going to lose too much. Um, th- what happens in the, so to me, this one happens in the office. I get nervous about a project and, uh, I reject a project, but the reality is, it, I mean, it could save me thousand man hours, but it was going to cost me a hundred, but I start getting overly, overly worried about that hundred. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the other thing that happens with loss of burden virus that I just find funny is uh, it's when you miss out on something. So like the last piece of cake, if you get it, <laughs> you're you're done. If you don't get it, you think about it all day. Like, why yeah. didn't I eat that piece of cake? I really wanted that. I wanted that. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been I've been telling people. So here in Indianapolis, the Mira Awards were Saturday night, and oh, yeah. and uh, I decided this year that I wasn't going to go. A lot of different reasons. But then as the photographs started coming on LinkedIn of, of all these people having such a great time at the event, it was like, oh, man, I really missed out on right. on that. So it was like that piece of cake that I didn't eat. You know, I've been thinking <laughs> well, about it all week. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not that's not the end of the world. That's yeah, at the, yeah. At the, yeah. From an innovation perspective, an office perspective, I, I used to get th this is one I try to watch out for because I feel like from a leadership perspective. This one, this one can, um, you know, it can, this can impact your career. If you, it, you do have to learn how to take a little bit of risk um, and how to take mm -hmm. on some different initiatives and things like that. And if you get, and you should absolutely, you know, do risk evaluations and things like that. But if you, if you overestimate the risk of doing something, um, it, it'll lead to delays, cancellations, things like that, that, um, you know, re result in, in, in problems for the company. So what do we do about it? How, how do we unbias or debias ourselves on this one? Yeah, this one, this one, the best thing to do is actually, uh, so like pros and cons analysis, um, assess benefits, uh, do a risk assessment if it's like a, a, a project. And um, truly what you want to do is get another's opinion on on what they think. Um, and I think that's, th those concepts are really important. And you'll see this a lot. You'll see a lot of like debiasing techniques are like create awareness, which you're doing a great job today having this conversation. Um, you know, get others' opinions, things like that. Uh, those are the types of things that we can do to debias. But this one specifically, it's it's go after trying to do a benefits assessment, try to get someone to help you with a risk assessment to to really figure out if if uh, if you've got loss aversion bias going on. Try try to get some quantitative things yeah. to look at uh, as you're trying to make that decision. Absolutely, uh, I, I think that's uh, I think that's a great one. Uh, and I know we're going to talk later about okay. So how do you how do you interrupt this thing and and engage uh, uh, the the uh, system too? But we'll talk about that in a minute. The next one I want to talk about is uh, near and dear to my heart. Uh, it's called the status quo bias, and the reason it's near and dear to my heart is that's why our podcast is named Status Go. It's for technology leaders who want to break out of the status quo and move their departments and their businesses forward. So what is the status quo bias? Yeah, this is great. I love that you picked this one. Um, so the status quo bias is, is it's the resistance to any change, right? So anything that alters current state, we just resist it. Um, and it, as hum we do this all the time. And I, you know, what's what you and I were talking about CIOs and in, in these executive type technology roles, like this is a lot of our job is to move people through out of status quo bias and help them. And we've all done this, launched new systems, moved platforms, things like that. Um, but like we see this in lots of different areas, but like, uh, why do we keep the same insurance when if uh, I think there's a study I read that said every two years, you should actually requote your insurance because the chances are you can actually get a better rate with the same, uh, you know, with basically the same policy. Um, but status quo bias, right? We we don't mm -hmm. want the change. We want to you want to keep things the same. Um, some people stay in jobs too long. They uh, and and it's okay if you love your job. There's nothing wrong with that. But some people will stay in a job um, too long, 
because not because they want to, but just because of status quo biases, they, they fear the change, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what we see this, this one I find really interesting, and this is something to watch out for. So, uh, what in, in the sales cycle, what can happen is you'll see, uh, con add-ons to contracts and I, Microsoft, I think has done this to me and they'll add all these things in and you have to look at the contract. You're like, well, I didn't want any of those. But then now that it's in the contract, it turns out like they've done studies on this and you're more likely to leave the stuff in the contract and figure out, um, you know, how to maybe just do a little bit of price negotiation or just leave it in there, which helps them in the long run because you're, you know, consuming different services like that. And it might be a good thing, but it's, it, it's your brain. Once it sees something there, tries to limit the amount of change that's happening. That's interesting. I never, I never thought about this in context of a contract and contract negotiation where you're, you, you see it in there and rather than negotiating it out, you kind of negotiate around it almost. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. And it's not like these always happen. These are just yeah. the tendencies yeah. of our mind to do certain things. And some people I've met, you know, seen really good contract negotiators. Um, they know how to, uh, and this is like when system one's involved, right? You just like that visualization story, the you quick, you know, you quickly right. look at it. You, yeah. All right. And you move on. Um, this would be more, uh, if you can get, like you were talking system two, or if you can get your system two to engage and you can sit down and really start to engage it, um, that's where you'll start to be able to kind of de-bias this type of, of, of behavior of, of bias. And, and, and you, you mentioned this as you were describing this status quo bias that, part of part of our jobs are are to implement change and and everybody just change is hard and it's yeah. really this bias that's in that and trying to motivate people or influence people to make the change you really have to use some of the techniques that you were just talking about to show people kind of what's in it for them what's the benefit to them and what you're really trying to do, I think, is have them engage their system too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And this one, yeah, if because there's different sides of this, right? If you if we're the change agent, we're the ones trying to make the change. This one's good to be aware of that this is what's going on for everyone around you. So how do you yeah. how do you help them engage their system too? And what you'll find is like assessing alternatives becomes really important, giving mm-hmm. people options. So they feel like they've got some control and can, uh, you know, be part of the decisioning process. Um, there's this concept that comes up when we talk about status quo bias called like cognitive rigidity, which I love. It sounds cool, but it's probably not good. Um, <laughs> but the idea behind it is like people, people will close off and your job. And, and I think our job as technologists and leaders is to try to help, you know, open that up. And I, what I think about um, this one specific, and I love that you picked this one because I think it's so relevant to today. Uh, with the digital transformation initiatives that are going on in companies at this point, like this is what we're fighting. And what I think what the COVID situations did over the last two years is people are, you know, we've got people shifting back into offices. We've got these giant uh, digital transformation initiatives that are going on. And these are huge changes going on for people. Um, And so I think a lot of what we've got to do is try to help people understand different options, try to get people system twos engaged. But remember, that's a lazy engine. And you know, they'd rather just go with the bias and move on. Yeah. 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 It's too bad. We don't have a switch. We can just reach over, and, you know, t- turn somebody's switch on to say, okay, system two's engaged now. Let's, let's go. We could, you and I, sh- yeah, we should write something up on that and try to figure out how we get that. I need that. 
<laughs> yeah, that would be great. That would be great. All right. The, the next one I want to jump into is um, one called the anchoring bias. And I think this is, this is so important in our daily lives uh, because it, it comes into play in so many different ways. So what is the anchoring bias? And then give us an example or two. Yeah, this one, this one is real. This one, um, I had to read about this one a lot because I had to keep reading it to try to understand exactly why was that happening. Um, so the anchoring bias is like we use like one piece of information that we hear, the like and that's our anchor, mm-hmm. um, and then we assume we can use that, and then we assume it's correct to make some decision. So um, someone tells you that you you go see a computer cost five thousand dollars, then you see one for a thousand, you immediately think the second one is cheap, where mm-hmm. they actually could both have been very, very, and very, very expensive computers for what you were going to get, but you've anchored around that first thing that you saw $5,000 for a computer. Yeah. Um, this happens with cars. I don't have this one mm-hmm. normally in my deck, but uh, car negotiations, you see this when you see a price for a car. Um, we, the story that we talked about, you a contract for a million dollars and then immediately looking at a subscription agreement or something like that for $10,000 a month. Right. And your brain has, and this happens a lot with numbers. Our brains do this with numbers. We've anchored back to that number we just saw. Um, and so we'll start to think that's cheap because of the number we just saw versus if you had been looking at a contract for you know $500 and then you saw a $10,000 a month subscription, you'd be like, oh my gosh, that's expensive. Yeah. What's going on? Um, so a lot of times this is anchoring effect or anchoring biases are where you hear people like in salary negotiations. Yeah. Yeah. The first person that, you know, everyone says like, don't be the first person to say a number. Um, and that I've, I've read a few things on this, and that actually can be your benefit to sometimes say the number first, and sometimes it's not. But whoever says it first is that becomes that becomes our anchor that we're all going to negotiate around that point, right? Yeah, yeah. It'll go plus and minus from that number, right? But it won't go orders of magnitude different, right? So it's a that one. This one, this one is for me is is really difficult because I know it's happening, and um, so I've. There's different techniques I've heard, like take a, like, this is like, you've got to engage system too. There, that's your only, only way to, uh, to work through this one. And it's a lot, so a lot of people say like between, between things that are, you feel like are having anchoring effects, you should try to take breaks. Um, actually used to, someone, I had a friend of mine tell me that, that what they like to do is they actually like to think about like the scores from last night's game or something like that, like hmm. between contracts or things like that they'll look up something on espn you know before they start on the next thing and he does a lot of contract negotiation so yeah um so there's different things that you can do to just kind of un unanchor yourself from from you know that that if you're working on like a common work stream or something like that or the other thing that some people do is ask for multiple forecasts uh, on something so if if someone says oh, you know yeah. what do you what do you think i should you know ask for in salary or what do you think that this contract should cost and you get a few different viewpoints and now you've got all this information that came in and that you can kind of start to really think it through at that point. Multiple, multiple data points. I, f- I find it interesting. The, the person that you mentioned that goes and, and looks at uh, sports scores. Yeah. Cause that's getting more numbers in your head. And, and I assume what that does is break that, uh, that, that anchor uh, to the original number so that you're, you're fresh going into the, to looking at the, the next one. Yeah, especially especially if it's like a like a contract negotiation. It's yeah. he he feels that that helps him like yeah, break the anchoring effect or it kind of makes him like take a deep breath and then go back and then what happens is he's got to refocus, which it's system 2. He's got to refocus to figure out, you know, where he was at and what was happening. 
So he feels like that kind of um, starts the system two process. Or, well, that's how I describe it. He describes yeah, it differently, yeah. but I'm as I'm listening, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Well, that's because you've studied it, and maybe he hasn't. So, <laughs> Slightly. No, I, I I think that's a great uh, just the mental image of system one versus system two. I, I don't know why, but I keep thinking uh, uh, Star Trek engage system two. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that that'll be my new thing. I'll I'll be geeking out engage on Star Trek system two. I like <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah. All right. The the last one we have time for today, Mike, the halo effect. What what yeah. bias is that? And give us some examples and then let's talk about how do we break that cycle. Yeah. So the the halo effect. A lot of people have heard about this one, but the halo effect. So that shapes our views of the world. So we relate our perspective in one area uh, to influence another. That that could be completely unrelated. Mm-hmm. Um, so an example would be like thinking so in that visualization. So thinking someone's good at their job. Um, because you have similar outside work. So you both like golf. So obviously they must be a great computer engineer right, or whatever. Right. Um, sometimes people, uh, this one's really, I, this one I find really interesting. Uh, so a lot of times people think extroverts are more intelligent because they talk more and they're more outgoing. And so they're like, oh, well, they must be more intelligent because they're willing to talk. And it's like, no, that that's potentially not, has no, <laughs> no bearing on that at all. Um, and this has happened to me. This one was interesting. So assuming, uh, so you assume a person who's wearing a suit is in charge because charge. most, I work in banking and most of the people that I know wear suits a lot. Yeah. Uh, and so I see people in suits and people wearing t-shirts and I assume the people in the suits are in charge. And I was, uh, we had a, a CTO from a software company that had come in with a big team because we had a problem going on and uh, he showed up. Uh, well, this team showed up. I didn't know what he looked like. This is before LinkedIn and I could look at someone's picture before they came yep. in the building. Yep. And uh, so he shows up, this whole team, 10 people, and they're introducing everyone, everyone's standing around. And we immediately went up to the, there were three of them, a couple of them in suits, went up to them because we figured this is, this is the executive team that's here. Talked to them for a little while and they said, oh, this is, this is the CTO, Miguel. And we look at Miguel and Miguel is in t-shirt, uh, you know, jeans that I probably hadn't been washed in a few weeks. <laughs> By far one of the most brilliant people I've ever talked to in my life but had no interest in suits. You couldn't yeah. convince him to wear one if, <laughs> for anything. But those are, like those are the types of halo. My, yeah. my kind of guy. I, I, lo- I love that. I love that. Right? So how do we break the halo effect? So this one's hard. This is really, really hard um, because of how we're wired. But um, so if you're, if you're, so again, it's a, it's a lot of system two engagement. Um, one thing you can do if you have to make a decision between people and you're worried about um, your, your, uh, your, the halo effect involving, you know, maybe, maybe two people in a promotion or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you can try to remove personally identified information from the decision, yep. use quantitative information, getting other people involved then in the decision, show them your data and say, here's what I'm thinking of doing. Give me a perspective. Um, those are the types of things that we can do. And ultimately, ultimately this one is a lot about awareness and just knowing that this is an effect that occurs. And this doesn't mean you, you should immediately go out and say, I'm going to make sure all these people that I like hanging out with and talking to it where I'm just going to, I don't like them anymore. You shouldn't do that, (laughs) but you should, but but engage and kind of think about it. But yeah, removing personally identifiable information when you're making decisions, um, trying to, uh, you know, engage system to things like that, uh, as, as you go through the day. And, and the easiest way to engage system two is actually to like kind of take a deep breath when you're thinking mm-hmm. about something 
um, you'll probably still make the mistake every once in a while walking to the people up in suits. I don't know yeah. if you can stop yeah. that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah that, 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 that one's probably tough. Yeah. Well, Mike, we have we have uh, covered a lot of uh, space here, a lot of territory, um, and we're we're running up on time. So, um, as you know, as I mentioned, status quo. We're trying to break out and become status go. So what are one or two things that our listeners should do tomorrow because they listen to us today? Yeah. So when, so I'd, I'd advise two things. So one, um, when you're making decisions, uh, big decisions, um, take a deep breath and think about that system two concept. And you'll find just doing that actually helps you engage your system two. Um, and I think doing and, and in doing that, you're you're kind of forcing your brain to not be so lazy, and you'll find that your decision making ability uh, uh, should become should become better. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing that I would really uh, so listening to this podcast is that it's not one I, would, I mean it's definitely one I would recommend. This is you know talking to you and I is great, but uh, <laughs> so after listening to this, um, hopefully one of the things you heard is like getting opposing viewpoints becomes really important. So you've yeah. done the thing by listening to the podcast, you've created awareness. That's actually a giant one. Um, but getting opposing viewpoints and actually listening to people you don't agree with, uh, could be really hard. Cause maybe like from a halo effect, you're like, I want to promote this person. They're great. We play golf every Saturday, mm-hmm. um, versus, uh, you know, trying to pull out some data and say, well, yeah, but I had these two people in this other one actually from a performance perspective, they actually perform a lot better. Maybe we should get a different opinion. So seek other opinions. Don't fight. Just try to, you know, uh, go through the environment and try to, you know, get get perspectives that might not confirm mm-hmm. your own. And then and then weigh weigh the options. So I, I I love that the the take a deep breath to to take that pause and think, is this a decision where I need to engage system two? Even that thought right. process. You know, because you, we don't need to do that deep thinking on every decision that we're making. But if it's important enough, take that pause and just think uh, and then get opposing viewpoints. Um, uh, I think that 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 plays into a lot of areas of our life that we won't get into right now. But uh, uh, having having different viewpoints and that diversity of thought, diversity of of opinion, I think, is important for us as leaders. So. Absolutely. Great, great recommendations, Mike. Mike, this has been this has been a lot of fun. Uh, and before we close out, I want to mention uh, your blog. I stumbled on it the other day. I didn't know you had it out there. It's called the Data Hitchhiker. Uh, yeah. Tell us just a little bit about that, and then uh, we'll be sure in our show notes to include a link to that so people can check that out. Yeah, I just I just spun that up. Actually, one of the I was uh, I I set that up because I was actually researching um, different types of patterns uh, for social media and things like that. But then I found that I actually enjoyed uh, writing some of the articles, uh, and the idea behind it was I was gonna um, uh, collect stories or information that would help people that were on some kind of data journey. Uh, yeah. It doesn't matter if you're building a BI program or you're a BI analyst or you're trying to make a decision around data platforms or you're just curious about a story. I actually have posted some of this material in there that talks about, you know, how biases affect data. I think there's two mm-hmm. articles in there about it. Um, but the idea behind it was just to help people with data journeys uh, with anything that I could share. So it's pretty fun, actually. Oh, that's awesome. And and I've read uh, a couple of the pieces that you have out there. And to our audiences, uh, I think you'll gain some real insights as you uh, read some of those posts and follow along with Mike on his journey digging into data. So, Mike, 
thank you. Oh my gosh, it's been uh, it's been so great. I am so glad that uh, we kind of ran into each other at that event uh, uh, a month or so ago because uh, I think this topic is so important. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I've appreciated it. To our listeners, if you have a question or want to learn more, visit intervision.com. The show notes will provide links and contact information. This is Jeff Tun for Mike Butler. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to the Status Go podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or get more information at intervision.com. If you'd like to contribute to the conversation, find InterVision on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Thank you for listening. Until next time.